guys wanting to get a little creepy? Because we're about to. Hi, welcome to this bonus episode of What the Actual F. If I didn't freak you out with those few words in the intro and the way I said it, well, it's great to have you. My name is Harmony, and I'm the host here on this podcast. Every week, I try to come here and release an episode telling you a tale of something that's happened around our world. The stories I tell you often consist of true crime, strange and odd disappearances, the not-so-average mysteries, spooky tales of hauntings, all things that go bump in the night, and, of course, conspiracies. I do love a good conspiracy. And every once in a while, I do miss a week. But when I come back the following week, I do my best to release a bonus episode. And that is what you have just stumbled upon. I wasn't here last week and I felt really bad. It's been eating at me. So I thought that I would put together a little something just for you guys. After all, I wouldn't be able to sit here and make the kind of content I do if it wasn't for you. In order to open this episode, I need to give you the definition of a word. Paranormal. Merriam-Webster defines the word paranormal as not scientifically explainable. And this I'd like you to keep in mind as I tell you several tales today that center around the paranormal. Things that just aren't quite scientifically explainable. I hope you guys are ready to get a little creepy, a little spooky, definitely a lot a bit weird. But most of all, I hope you're ready to hang out with me for a little while as I tell you some of the craziest tales that I have found from around our world. All right, friends, it's time we begin. My first wife's name was Linda. My first wife's name was Linda. I divorced Linda and married Betty. And then my second wife's name was Betty. My first son's name was James Allen. My first son was, was James Allen. How many of you wonder about your doppelganger? According to science, there's at the very least eight other people walking this planet that look just like you. Don't believe me? Look it up. Eight is actually on the low side of what science believes. To any of my doppelgangers out there, I just gotta say, I am so sorry about, well, our face. I know, I know. Gotta work with it, right? Do the best that you can with what you have. Now, there are many of us as well that are born with one of our doppelgangers, or what we would like to call a twin. Now, this very first case I have for you today, we're gonna be talking about twins. And when I'm done with this tale, it may have many of you nature versus nurture debaters questioning yourself. I would love to know what all of you think of this one. This is the tale of the Jim Twins. We're happy to accept the idea that physical characteristics like speed and endurance have a strong genetic component. Fast dogs are bred from parents who are fast. But when it comes to us, to our personality and the choices we make in life, we feel differently. The idea that we are all running around a track following some predetermined genetic script is repellent. 
but some twin stories really make you wonder. Now, although the story of Jenny and Margaret is pretty surprising, it's nothing compared with the astonishing story of the Jim Twins. I want to know what you make of this case. In the 1940s, a set of twin boys at three weeks old were given up for adoption. Sadly, however, the two were not adopted by the same family. But coincidentally, their adoptive parents would end up naming both boys James. Over time, both men came to be known as Jim for short. But that is just the start of how eerily similar these men's lives would be. The two men would grow up just 40 miles away from one another. One of the boys was adopted by the Lewises of Lima, and the other was adopted by the Springers of Piqua. Both sets of adopted parents knew that the adopted boys had a twin, but they didn't know what had become of the other. From there though, even though the boys' lives had become separated, they were unknowingly forging nearly the most identical life as their twin brother. My first wife's name was Linda. My first wife's name was Linda. I divorced Linda and married Betty. And then my second wife's name was Betty. And now I'm married to Sandy. Well, she's kind of leery that this hopes I don't ever come across her a Sandy. I got interested in the woodwork because uh, my father, he was always doing woodwork. Uh, I've been doing woodworking for quite a long time. My first son's name was James Allen. My first son was, was James Allen. My favorite beer was uh, Miller Lite, and I've always smoked Salem cigarettes. My favorite beer is, is Miller's Lite, and smoking, I, I smoke Camel Lite, but then I smoke Salem Lite, too. I, I switch back and forth. I was in the Sheriff's Department in Miami County as a deputy. I was a deputy sheriff for seven years. Both of the gyms had beloved childhood dogs by the name of Toy. And also, as children, they had both a proclivity for math. They also both discovered a true intense joy for woodworking. But one thing the two twins did not have the best with was spelling. If their childhoods weren't uncanny enough, let's talk about their adulthood. Both Jims had married two women with the same names. The first time they married, they ended up marrying a woman by the name of Linda. Obviously, two separate Lindas. Didn't feel like I had to say that, but I mean, like, we have warning labels on things, so I'm sure one of you needed to hear that. Now, when this first marriage didn't work out for either of the gyms, they would go on to get divorced. Both of them would then meet another woman by the name of Betty, and they would both go on to marry her. Again, two separate Bettys. I don't feel like I need to say it, but mm, you never know. Now, both Jim Lewis and Jim Springer would have a son, and I'm sure you know exactly what I'm about to say, but they both gave their boys the same name, James Allen. Both Jims were heavy smokers, drove the same car, which was a Chevrolet, and had many of the same exact similar jobs. They even took vacations at the exact same Florida beach. Neither of the men, however, knew any of these similarities that they were sharing with one another. However, this changed when both of the men were 37. Jim Lewis decided he wanted to get into contact with his twin. And in 1977, he succeeded in finding his contact details 
for his brother. This led to the two men speaking on the phone and eventually agreeing to meet. It was a very good, warm feeling, you know. It's like uh, you have something favorite of yours and you lost it and you have to have it, you know. And you finally find it it's a good feeling to find, to find that thing. Well, that's where it was with Jim. Words came, really say. On February 9th of 1979, the Jim twins were finally reunited. When their fascinating case finally came to light, scientists saw just how valuable they could be to a study of reunited twins. They took part in a study conducted by Dr. Thomas Bouchard of University of Minnesota. Dr. Bouchard would go on to discover that their medical histories and their brainwave tests were almost identical. So too were the results of the brothers' personality test. The case of the Jim brothers and others just like them would go on to influence so many theories of nature versus nurture and how science thinks about the effects of hereditary over environmental factors. Some have even considered that the Jim twins case as possible proof of telepathic connections between twins. Jim Springer did have this to say, quote, it always felt like an emptiness. It always seemed like something was missing. So I'm gonna ask you, do you think it was the other Jim that he was subconsciously feeling? How do you explain the fact that the two men lived nearly the same exact life? You guys can look into the identical twins known as the Jim twins and read all about their story, including seeing interviews of the two brothers. But for now, we're gonna move on to the next case. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an account of actual events involving real people. The names have been changed and they'll be portrayed by professional actors for obvious reasons. But as far as the motion picture medium permits it, the manner in which these events came about and the answers given under hypnosis by Ruth Simmons will be presented as they happened in reality. I want to make it clear that I am neither a qualified doctor nor a professional hypnotist. I'm a conventional businessman with a respectable three-generation family business in the town of Pueblo, Colorado. So to show you how and why our search for Bridie Murphy came about, I'll go back and start from the beginning. Who out there believes in reincarnation? Because the case of Bridie Murphy may have you believing it's real. In 1952, a young businessman named Maury Bernstein, a third-generation proprietor of Bernstein Brothers Equipment Company of Pueblo, Colorado. He would witness an act of hypnotism at a dinner party and became almost immediately enamored with the subject. He would begin seeking out every book on the subject that he could get his hands on, foregoing for a time all novels and other forms of entertainment in favor of learning everything that there was to know on the subject of hypnotism. Watch this ring. Just keep looking at it till it becomes hazy and out of form. Hazy and out of form. See? Ah, uh, oh, quit, quit killing my act, will you? You're fighting me. No, he isn't. He's one of the few types that's immune to hypnotic suggestion. Uh, you bet I am. That's the way he's going to stay. See, what can you do? <laughs> I could have forgotten the whole nutty business then and there if Dr. Deering hadn't offended my ego by that crack of his. 
As it was, I went to the library next day to find out what was so unusual about my immunity to hypnosis and whether that made me any screwier than the people who go out like a light the minute some phony snaps his fingers at them. After a while, he felt as though he was ready to give hypnosis a go himself. With his first two subjects ready to be hypnotized, he began. He would go on during this hypnosis session to end up alleviating his wife Hazel's persistent migraine headaches. And he also allegedly cured the stutter of a borderline suicidal college student's nephew of a family friend. In fact, if Bernstein is to be believed, which is certainly a question deserving some serious attention, he successfully treated a variety of ailments, such as smoking and insomnia. Using this now amazing power of hypnosis and post-hypnotic suggestions. However, those tales are all prelude to the subject from which his fame arises. This story was initially serialized by William J. Barker in the Denver's Post-Empire magazine. This came to light in 1954. It would be this tale that would catapult the notion of past life regression into the public consciousness. I just can't get over Maury wanting to break the time barrier with his two bare hands. Look, Ma, no jet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ha, ha, very comical. Turn blue, Bernstein. Oh, Maury, we're just kidding you because we love you. Hazel, let a major regress you back to your childhood and we'll stand by with diapers and safety pins. No, I'm afraid I'm not a very good subject for him anymore. I just sort of lie there and doze peacefully with my mind a complete blank. Makes him so mad. Hey, Ruth, how about you? Why don't you be the guinea pig this time? Hmm? I don't know. Shall I, Rex? Uh, I, I don't think so. Why not? I like you just as you are. Oh, thank you. What do you think I'm going to do? Turn her into a Halloween witch or something? Look, why should Ruth and I monkey around with something we don't understand and don't want to? Now, Rex has a point there. After all, it isn't the kind of a thing that a respectable insurance man would want to tangle with. It's like belonging to a nudist camp and then suddenly finding your picture in a health magazine at the local drugstore. <laughs> yeah, a big fat joke. What if I did come home one night and say, look, I just got my picture in a health magazine under hypnosis and the head office has fired me. You wouldn't laugh then, I bet. Isn't he a pet? Just as square as they come, but I worship all six sides. <laughs> what can you do with a doll like this? All right, I give up. Nurse! Notify surgery before he changes his mind. Uh, Maury, get him another scotch. My murky past may knock him for a loop. Better make it a double. Double right. I now need to tell you about a woman by the name of Virginia Ty, or as you may have heard, Ruth Mills Simmons. Virginia's name was changed to Ruth when the story came out in order to hide her identity and keep her privacy. Now, under hypnosis, Virginia had a very interesting story. She spoke of her past life as a woman by the name of Bridie Murphy. Bridie was born on December 20th of 1798 in the town of Cork, Ireland. The tale was slowly drawn out over a series of sessions and would reveal remarkable details. Some details in which were startlingly accurate, and others that weren't even a little bit. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, among the specifics, she would mention her husband's name and his profession. She also stated the name of the church in which they were wed, and even how she ended up dying by falling down a flight of stairs. 
She even recounted attending her very own funeral. Another remarkable detail was that as she told the story under hypnosis, she spoke with a thick Irish brogue. This is a characteristic completely lacking in her waking tone. What I'm trying to say is she shouldn't speak with an Irish accent if she wasn't Irish because she didn't know how to. At least, this is what was claimed. Originally, when this story hit headlines, it was believed at face value. And it would go on to capture the imagination of the country. Seen the noon edition, Murray? Oh. There's a write-up about you and Ruth Simmons proving life after death by hypnotizing each other. Or some such idiotic claptrap. Pete's sake, let me see it. Any more of that kind of publicity? And you're going to drive away every big account we ever had. No, I'm not. I'm not going to end up in a padded cell either. I admit it's rotten publicity. I'll have to get him to print a retraction before Rex blows his top. I suppose it doesn't bother you if I blow my top. Maury, I think you've gone crazy. Unfortunately, poor Maury would find out that once people take a look at you, they're going to start doing their own investigating. Maury released a book called The Search for Bridie Murphy, and he did this without doing much of his very own research. While the astonishingly true story captivated many, there were several who were skeptical and unwilling to take the tale at face value. Once people actually started to look into the tale, well, Virginia, or Ruth's claims, began to unravel. Among many examples of the several inconsistencies and inaccuracies were such as this. The church in which Bridie and her husband were wed, Sean Joseph Brian McCarthy, was St. Teresa's Church in Belfast. Er, Belfast? Oh god, I probably said it wrong. Anyways, this church wasn't built until 1911, which was supposed to be 47 years after the death of Bridie in 1864. Her husband was identified as a barrister, which is likely impossible because a Catholic wouldn't bear this title until after the Catholic Emancipation of 1829. This is a surprisingly yet very significant detail, one that would never be addressed. Even simpler things though, like purchasing clothing at shops, rather than what was normal and common for the time of having a dressmaker come by or purchasing cloth, all of these little inconsistencies would bring up so many questions. And of course, the most important, questioning the validity of the tale. Hello. Maury? I've just read the ribbing they gave you in the noon edition. Don't let it get you down. Look, I'm here with three friends of mine. One's a newspaper man, one's a publisher, the other's a professor of philosophy. They're willing to give your bride a serious hearing. Would you mind playing the tapes for them? Well, I'll be very glad to, sir. I'll have to ask. Ask who? Ask. Are you cold? Brian says I'm getting a chill. Well, that's all there is. I'm completely fascinated. Then you don't think that Maury and Ruth just faked this whole thing for a gag? If they did, Mrs. Simmons ought to be starring on Broadway. She certainly fooled me. I'm glad you feel that way, Professor. I'd like to watch one of those sessions. Would that be possible? No, I'm afraid not. Rex Simmons put his foot down. Do you consider it important to go on? What we've done is just the beginning. It... <clears throat> I've never worked with a more responsive subject. I, I doubt that I ever will. Professor, couldn't you use a little tactful persuasion on Rex? But what if it falls on deaf ears? Oh, it won't. Not coming from you. Oh, very well, then. 
I'll invite them to lunch with these three gentlemen and we'll see where we go from there. Oh, thank you, sir. It doesn't stop there. Further investigations would reveal more damning details. While Virginia was born Virginia May Reese and primarily raised by her Norwegian uncle and his wife, both of Virginia's parents were part Irish and she lived with them until she was three. Even more significantly damning, an Irish immigrant by the name of Bridie Murphy Corkell lived across the street from Virginia when she was a child. Now I need to tell you an important note here. You may be thinking, wow, okay, so this is just someone making up a lie to become famous? as a lot of people do. But it doesn't actually appear as though there was any deliberate deception on anyone's part throughout this tale. In fact, this was fully investigated into, and investigators would conclude that most of Virginia's claims of her past life memories could be attributed to cryptomnesia. Cryptomnesia occurs when the brain recalls a memory but doesn't recognize it as such as it is. This makes it more so like a false memory, which is when something which never actually happened is recognized by the brain as being a very real memory. Since many of the events in Virginia's life happened when she was an infant or a toddler, it is likely that she or her memories were fragmented in an incomplete way. This would leave these memories and little moments in her life to blend, but also leaving them incomplete i.e. leaving false memories. Now let's pair this with Maury's very amateur status and in many cases, very leading questions. Virginia's brain was likely to pick out these little scraps of information and construct a narrative around them. Virginia did not like the spotlight, which was evident by the fact that she insisted on Maury using a different name for her. She was also reportedly skeptical of her own words and tapes that she claimed to be reincarnated and told this story of Bridie. Regardless of which, the tale of Bridie Murphy or Virginia Ty became a national phenomenon. In fact, the case of Bridie Murphy or Virginia Ty also inspired a term that is still used today, past life regression. Feel free to look up the fascinating tale of Virginia Ty, Maury Bernstein, and of course, Bridie Murphy. But for now, let's go ahead and go to our next case. Story we're following tonight, that rush hour train collision north of LA last Friday. The death toll is now at least 25 as investigators inspect track signals. They're also looking at cell phone records after claims by two teenage train enthusiasts that they had been text messaging the engineer at the time of the collision. I'd like to think if something happens to me suddenly, I'd reach out to let my loved ones know that I'm still here and I love them. Well, what if one of your family members suddenly and tragically was killed in an accident? You, however, were unaware. All you know is they had been calling you. This brings me to the case of Charles E. Peck. Charles's Metrolink death is probably one of the most prominent and creepy stories. This, however, is solely due to a string of phone calls. Phone calls that were made after he was dead. Do I have your attention now? Charles was sadly killed instantly in a horrible crash involving the Metrolink in 2008. 
This was where a total of 25 people died and 135 were injured. But before anybody knew that Charles was dead, his family members received 35 phone calls from his phone for several hours following the disaster. Whether or not it's due to phone damage or maybe a train rider reaching out from beyond, we may never know the truth behind this eerie instance. Maybe this can bring some of us some comfort that someone we love who has passed on is only a phone call away. She says they might have looked like an odd couple. Andrea Katz is six foot one. Chuck Peck was five seven. But she says they were made for each other. They've been friends for 20 years, and after his divorce a couple of years ago, their friendship turned to love. She was on her way to pick him up from the Metrolink station when she heard the news on the radio. She knew immediately he was on that train. But was he alive? And then they got the first call. It was to Chuck's son in Utah. And he said, my dad just called me. And I said, what did he say? Where is he? Is he okay? It, it, he didn't say anything. The phone rang and it said, Dad. They watched the tormenting search for survivors, certain that Chuck was alive and trapped in the wreckage. Between Chuck's kids and other family members, about three dozen calls were made from Chuck's phone. But there was only static and silence. And then almost five hours after the collision, at 9.08... Andrea got a call. And we were yelling in the phone, you know, hang in there, baby. They, you know, we're going to get you out. You're going to be okay. It was the hope they needed. And when the rescue efforts were about to turn to recovery, there was another call. And that prompted search crews to trace it. It was coming from the first train. So they went back in one last time. 49-year-old Charles Peck worked for Delta Airlines. However, Charles was strongly considering leaving his job at Salt Lake City International Airport for a job at the Van Nuys Airport in Los Angeles, all so he could be closer to his fiance, Andrea Katz. In fact, Charles had an interview at the airport in hopes to get a position there so he could move in with his fiance. Although the couple was ready to get married, that the fact that they didn't live in the same state was a pretty big issue. Many of you out there probably don't believe in long-distance relationships, but they were trying, and they were tired of it. They wanted to be together. This, however, would never happen. Suddenly, disaster occurred. Andrea was on the way to pick up Charles from the train station when she heard on the news of an accident that involved the Metrolink. Charles had three children from a previous marriage, one of whom was on his list of these afterlife phone calls. Immediately upon hearing the news of the crash, Andrea was terrified, so worried that her fiance was hurt, injured, or even worse, dead. However, as she was driving to the train station, she realized she had received a call from his phone. Other friends and family members as well were in the same position. They had all received a call from Charles's phone. After the crash, Charles's phone had placed calls to his son, his sister, his brother, and his stepmother. And of course, Andrea, but I already told you that. In about a sequence of 35 calls that were made during the 11 hours that followed the accident, the final call would be placed at 3.28 in the morning. This was just one hour before Charles's body would be found. And we gave her a description and they spent the next couple of hours looking for him. 
And um, they did end up finding him, and they said that he had died immediately on impact, and there was no way he could have been calling us. She believes those phone calls got them through the night and helped them find Chuck's body. The intellectual side of my brain thinks, gee, it was a computer malfunction, and the emotional side of my brain, is it was just Chuck letting us know that he knew that we were scared for him and letting us have hope. And she's also comforted by the fact that they were happy, ready to get married and start their new life together. She believes he was riding that train with a smile. Charles Peck was a passenger on a Metrolink commuter train traveling from San Fernando Valley in California on September 12th of 2008. This train would end up colliding headfirst with a Union Pacific freight train at 83 miles per hour. This was all due to the conductor failing to stop at a red light. As you can imagine, the impact was devastating. And of the 225 people aboard the Metrolink, at least 25 died and more than over 100 were seriously injured. The engineer sitting at the front of the train was killed instantly as well. The freight train was carrying only a crew of three members, but it was completely demolished in the accident. This incident would go on to be known as the Chatsworth train crash and is considered to be one of the worst commuter train accidents in the history of California. At first, Charles's loved ones must have been extremely excited to see his name popping up on the screens of their phone. As his calls continued, they had hoped that he would still be alive and was just trapped under the rubble of the crash. Unfortunately, they were unable to ever actually talk to him. All they would hear would be static if they picked up the calls. However, Andrea used this opportunity to communicate with her fiancé. She let him know that she was with him. She shouted out messages of encouragement, saying things like, Hang in there, baby. We're gonna get you out. You're going to be okay. I love you. Others also reported hearing static when he would call or even a faint voice from very, very far away. Now, before the rescuers had discovered Charles's body in the wreckage, they had absolutely no reason not to believe that the calls being placed from his phone to his family meant that he was still alive. Sadly though, the hope that Charles was alive would slowly start to diminish. Just a few hours after the crash, it became very clear to rescue workers that this was most likely no longer a rescue mission, but a recovery one. However, another phone call came from Charles's phone, which prompted rescue workers to trace its location. Unfortunately, this would lead to the discovery of his body, and also to what I can only describe as the most disturbing discovery of all. Charles was killed immediately upon impact. Although rescue workers had been excited because these phone calls might mean that he was alive, as stated, this was simply not the case. According to anecdotal sources like forums for Unsolved Mysteries, Reddit, and so forth, the coroner was unable to find any signs that Charles had survived the initial impact. This confirmed that the calls were not made while he was still alive. Now anybody who's anyone has, I'm sure, butt-dialed somebody. Or hell, maybe your phone just became possessed and started hitting numbers, that's happened to me. With technology, it's always possible for it to glitch. Perhaps that's what happened here. Or perhaps maybe an object was sitting on top of Charles's phone, causing it to make random phone calls. Most likely, however, Charles's phone was severely damaged during the disaster which could either mean it was destroyed or it was malfunctioning. 
So obviously, take a look at the phone and check out what caused this to happen, right? Although rescue workers were able to locate Charles's body successfully, his phone was never discovered. It is possible that it was completely destroyed in the disaster or damaged to the point of malfunctioning and almost non-existence, making it look like rubble. But this doesn't explain how his phone made several calls to those he was closest to. One call, two call, three I could maybe excuse. 35, however, in the span of 11 hours? That is something mysterious. Perhaps Charles was reaching out to the ones he loved, hoping that they wouldn't worry or for him to say goodbye. Maybe it took him a while to cross over into the afterlife, if that's what you believe. But the even creepier thought is since they could trace the calls with his phone that they never found, maybe Charles was just leading them to his body so his family could have closure. No matter what, the mystery of Charles Peck and his phone calls will always remain unsolved. February 21st, 1977. At approximately 9 p.m. on a cold winter night, Chicago firefighters responded to a call from a lakefront residential building. When the firemen arrived, they found that the blaze was confined to an upper floor apartment. Inside, a mattress in the middle of the living room floor was engulfed in flames. the apartment seemed unoccupied, but soon the firemen made a grim discovery. Beneath the mattress, they found the body of a woman named Teresita Bassa. She had been stabbed in the chest. It also appeared that she had been raped, and the fire set in an attempt to cover up the murder. The final case I have for you guys today is a mix of true crime and the paranormal. The brutal murder of Teresita Bassa went unsolved for years. From the day that she was killed in 1977, Chicago area police were stumped by the crime. There seemed to be no motive, no leads, and no chance of being solved. But just five months after her murder, a very unlikely ally would come forward. Claiming to have information about a young Filipina immigrant's death was somebody quite unusual. Their information also proved to be quite valuable and also correct. Alan Showery, who was a co-worker of Teresita, was ultimately tried and convicted of her murder. On the surface, the murder of Teresita Bassa was largely unremarkable, though absolutely tragic for her friends and family and for Teresita. But sadly to say, every day there are murders and crimes committed. So what makes the case of Teresita Bassa something I feel the need to tell you? That is because of what makes her story so remarkable. Well, that would be the fact that Teresita Bassa solved her own murder. I saved this one for last because I feel it may leave you questioning yourself the most. The police are bewildered by this brutal crime. 
The official autopsy revealed that Teresita Bassa had not been raped. There was no apparent motive and little physical evidence. The investigation quickly reached a dead end. Then nearly six months later, police were startled by a lead as mystifying as a crime itself. A Chicago couple claimed that the victim, Teresita Bassa, had named her own killer after she was murdered, speaking to them from beyond the grave. Teresita Bassa was born in 1929 in the Philippines, and in the 1960s, Teresita decided to move to the United States. She did this in hopes of earning a better life for herself. Initially, Teresita came to the United States with the hopes to study music. However, she would ultimately settle in on becoming a respiratory therapist. This is when she began working at the Edgewater Hospital, a facility which was located just outside of Chicago, Illinois. Fun fact, this hospital was also the birthplace of serial killer John Wayne Gacy, oh, and Hillary Clinton. One and the same, right? Cause you know, Hillary supposedly had so many people killed. <laughs> I'm just kidding, seriously, Clintons don't come for me. Anyways, Teresita led a very quiet and unassuming life. She was pursuing her master's degree in music and would frequently give out complimentary piano lessons to the neighborhood children. When she wasn't working or studying, she would enjoy her life with her husband, Joe. This brings us to February 21st of 1977. Ruth Loab phoned Teresita and they chatted for about 30 minutes. Ruth would later go on to testify that Teresita was expecting a friend to come over, but she didn't give her any further details as to who it was or why they were coming by for a visit. Just an hour after Ruth had spoken to Teresita, the fire department was dispatched to Teresita's apartment because of a fire. Firefighters ultimately discovered Teresita's body naked and buried under a mattress with a knife protruding from her chest. Investigators would ultimately determine that despite initial appearances, Teresita wasn't the victim of a sexual assault. And they also discovered that there was no physical evidence that would lead to a suspect in her murder. Smoke and fire damage had destroyed all fingerprints, and nothing seemed to be missing from Teresita's apartment. Veteran Chicago detective Joe Stahula was totally baffled. No, we better get the crime lab up here and have him go through it. The only real piece of evidence we found was a memo indicating that she was expecting to obtain some theater tickets for a subject by name of A.S., who might have been uh, expected at the apartment on that night. Now let's talk about the strange occurrences that began six months after Teresita was murdered. The Washington Post reported that Dr. Jose C. Chua Jr., who was a co-worker of Teresita, was now claiming that his wife was having visions about Teresita's murder. Joe Stahula desperately grasped at any straw that held out hope of solving the case. Five and a half months after the murder, he responded to a strange call that would take his investigation into the realm of the paranormal. Dr. Bordas? Yes. Uh, I'm Detective Stahula from the Chicago Police Department. A Filipino physician had heard about Teresita Bassa through his wife. The two women had worked together at the hospital. The doctor and his wife have requested anonymity. We will call them Enrico and Alicia Borda. 
they would tell Stahula an unbelievable but compelling story. Have you ever had any dealings with possession or the occult? Being a police officer, I've run into a lot of strange things. I've always tried to keep an open mind about it. It was a funny situation. Being a policeman, you can tell when somebody's sincere and when they firmly believe uh, they're giving you good information. I could tell it that uh, he believed what he was telling me was the truth. What I'm about to tell you may sound bizarre. You see, I worked with the late Teresita. What would you do if you were hanging out with your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your, I don't know, best friend, somebody, and they suddenly fell into a trance? And in this trance, an unknown voice comes out and asks you for your help. What do they need help with? Well, they need you to help them identify their murderer. This is exactly what happened to Dr. Chua while his wife was in a trance. Doctor, I would like to ask you for your help. The man who murdered me is still at large. While his wife was in this trance-like state, Dr. Chua began to ask more questions. He asked the voice or whatever was in his wife to identify themselves. When he asked this voice to identify themselves, this is what they said. Ako ai Teresita Basa. This is Filipino for I am Teresita Basa. This voice would go on to tell Dr. Chua that him and his wife have nothing to be afraid of. The voice would continue to go on and plead for the doctor and his wife's help. Help because she knew who murdered her and she needed Dr. Chua and his wife to tell the police. Late one night after working a long shift, Alicia had gone to a hospital lounge for a short nap. She said that seconds after she closed her eyes, she felt a ghostly presence in the room. It was Teresita Bassa. At first, I thought I was dreaming. I could not believe my eyes. But she is looking at me, staring at me. I did not know what to do. I, I was so frightened. I, I pray. A couple of weeks after Alicia had seen Teresita. The boarders went on to tell of a second experience two weeks later, this time at their home. Alicia. That night, Alicia had gone to bed early, complaining of extreme fatigue. Her husband had gone into the bedroom to check on her. Dr. Bordo said he asked her if she was all right, and he said her voice was different. Help me. And attempting to get his wife to talk more, he asked her, who are you? What is your name? Teresita Bassa. He was confused because he did not know Teresita Bassa at the time. You must go to the police. The police cannot find my killer. Tell them his name is Alan Showery. Tell them. Upon listening to this, I, I really picked up now, A.S., finally know who A.S. and I asked him who did he know who Alan Showery was and he indicated from the uh, from the voice from Teresita Bassa that Alan Showery was an orderly that worked at the hospital with both his wife and Teresita Bassa. He said the first session only lasted about 30 minutes and then at the end his wife woke up he asked her if she knew what happened she said she didn't and then he sort of put it in the back of his uh, mind and didn't uh, act on it. What's the matter? 
Now, according to the book Teresita, A Voice from the Grave, Teresita's ghost pointed the finger at Alan Showery. He was a fellow co-worker of Teresita and Dr. Chua's wife. Although Alan initially tried to get the case against him thrown out because according to him, all of the evidence came from, quote, the great beyond, police would still go on to testify that in the beginning, Alan went in quietly with investigators when he was first suspected of the murder. To investigators, this almost came off as a tactic to acknowledge his own guilt. Something he was subconsciously doing, trying to hide but also admit, okay, I know why you guys called me in here, I did it, eh. However, after the very first trial against Alan ended in a mistrial, he ultimately decided just to go ahead and plead guilty to the crime on February 23rd of 1979. Alan was sentenced to 14 years in prison for his crime. He was ultimately let out on parole in 1983. He then returned to New York City shortly after he was released. And that is the case of Teresita Bassa, the woman who identified her killer from beyond the grave. show. Oh, sorry about that. You heard my weird side. Stick around, become a regular listener. <laughs> You'll hear it a lot. Any hoozles. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And I really hope it makes up for the fact that I wasn't here last week to tell you guys some dark tale from around our world. I also hope you enjoyed the way I went about this episode, telling you multiple cases at a time. The fact of the matter is sometimes I find something insanely interesting, but there's just not enough stuff on it to do a full episode. And voila! Here is my solution. Multiple cases, multiple stories in one episode. This is just a taste of what is heading your way from what the actual left. I'm not always gonna have one tale for you. We're not always gonna take a deep dive into a case because we simply can't. But that doesn't stop me from wanting to tell you all the things that I find out. So this is my solution. Multiple cases in one show so that you can find out everything that I do about this world. The world that we live in that is so beautiful, but so and utterly dark. In fact, give me a moment. Let me just type in a few. All right, I've got it ready and it's pulled up. Here is a trailer for you of what is coming this season in What the Actual Left. Well, that ain't too good. I mean, I done seen some rooms where I'm like, yo, this some pink puffy bullshit. I mean, Hello Kitty posters and chocolate. Now at 11, Polk County Sheriff says there are no good answers as to why a decorated veteran would become a mass murderer accused of taking the lives of four innocent strangers, including an infant. He's looking at you, kid. 
Todd family currently owns a business in Colchester. Relatives say they were commuting between Connecticut and Florida, but haven't heard from them since January 6, and believe those found dead inside that Florida home Monday morning are the Todds. <laughs> came into the newsroom within the last two hours. The Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office says the human remains found yesterday do belong to the missing lotto winner, Abraham Shakespeare. The big break in the case came earlier this week when a tipster told them to check out a home off East State Road 60 in Hillsborough County. When detectives arrived at that home, they started digging in nearby woods, and they finally zeroed in on a 30-by-30-foot concrete slab yesterday. Now, they brought in heavy digging equipment, and after ripping apart that slab, they found Shakespeare's remains. An autopsy earlier today helped investigators confirm their suspicions in this case. I pick up the knife, and I went back to the to the bedroom I I took the sheets off and in it I caught him Kathleen Peterson was found dead at the bottom of the couple's staircase. Peterson's husband is novelist Michael Peterson. The cop was on me instantly. There was sufficient evidence to warrant a trial. The injuries are not consistent with a fall down the stairs. The charge? First degree murder. I am so excited I could be my buns. Holy crap, I should probably end this episode because your girl's losing her mind. I'm just so excited. The things that I have for you guys, the things that are coming your way, oh, I can't wait. But it is time for me to say goodbye. And before we do, I want to run down really fast a few of the things we spoke of today, and I'd love to know what you think of them. W what do you think of the gym twins? Is it crazy or is it not that twins, separated just after birth, lived nearly the same exact life? Down to the names of their childhood dogs, their children, their wives. And, of course, their names. It's just crazy, man. It's just crazy. But what about Birdie or Virginia? Like, how do we explain that? Is the idea of having a past life and reincarnation really too crazy to believe? I mean, if you ask me about some of the shit that's going on today, if I would have believed this would have happened years ago, I would have laughed in your face. So now, thinking that past lives and possibility of a consciousness never ending, you just keep going and keep living again and again, isn't really so far-fetched. And hey, for what I'm about to say, please do not write me and assault me with your words because you disagree. This is called an opinion, and just like an asshole, I have one as well. You have your own. You don't have to show me yours and you don't have to look at mine or pay attention to it, but I'm gonna share it. If you can believe for eight to 10 years in a fat man that comes to your house and gives you presents, or if you're like many who believe in an invisible man that's sitting in the sky watching your whole life, then maybe you can entertain the thought that our consciousness never ends. Something, by the way, that science is closely proving. So past life is very possible. At least I believe so. Do I believe in the Bridie case? I'm not so positive. But one thing that really disturbs me about this episode and I kind of am really intrigued by is the Charles Peck case. It was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Charles died instantly when his commuter train hit head-on in the collision. 
Yet somehow, for 11 hours, he made 35 phone calls to several different people. All of these calls, mind you, did come from Charles's phone, which was traced and led rescuers to his body. Yet, they never found the phone. That's just fucking weird. They can trace it, but they can't find it. Oh my god, that's fucking crazy, right? Like, that's crazy. That's just, it's disturbing, but also wildly intriguing. Again, it makes you wonder. But what about Teresita Bassa? Does that not make you wonder? The fact that a woman is found dead and then roughly six months later, a co-worker says she's seeing Teresita and she knows who killed her. Meaning that Teresita Bassa legitimately solved her own case because Alan admitted it. He pled guilty. And throughout the time he was in jail, he talked about it, which is another reason why he was released. He did go on to say that the whole visit, because he did stop by, he was trying to talk to her, it got out of hand and he did something he regrets. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying that I agree that he was released the way he was. But he admitted he did it. He shared the whole story and he said he was sorry. Again, sorry does not bring Teresita back. I don't agree with the fact that he was released. He did murder somebody. Nobody will ever see or speak to Teresita again, but he got out. The thing is, is I find it very intriguing that a ghost solved their own murder. I don't know. Everything that I tell you guys just makes me question all of our world. And I want you to consistently do the same. Just because we grow up in a world with people telling us this is how it is, doesn't always mean this is how it is. If you're ever curious and have some time, look up the my red is not the same as your red theory. And tell me you won't start wondering about our world. You won't start asking yourself, <laughs> what the actual F? I assure you all, nothing is ever as it appears. Okay, okay, this is getting wildly long for an outro. It is now time that I bid you adieu. I love you guys, and please stay safe. I never, ever want to tell a story about one of you. So, what do you say? Meet me here next week? Same place, I'll tell you something kind of crazy, maybe spooky, or maybe I'll have several stories for you, really get you biting your nails. No matter what it is that I'll have for you, I'll be here. Unless, of course, a story about me is unfolding. Bum bum bum. Yes, that was a dark joke about my death, because inevitably I'm going to die just like you. I don't know how, I don't know when. God, it'd be some scary shit if this was my uh, <laughs> prediction. Let me just knock on wood. All right, we're good. I'm going to be alive. I'm going to end this now. I love you guys so much. And I will talk to you next week on the next episode of What the Actual F. And if you're still here and I haven't lost you yet, you are the reason I'm here. You guys, the ones that stay for all of it, every single thing. It's all for you. My final words, if this shall be them. I love you. I'll talk to you next time. And if not, I'll let you know I'm around much like Teresita. All right, guys. Love you later. Bye.